I'm sure you've seen these signs around town that say, we buy ugly houses. And uh, if you've ever thought about it, they're designed to get desperate people or those who own a distressed property to say, how can I unload this? And you call the number and uh, most often what they'll be told is, well, we'll pay you pennies on the dollar for what your property is worth. And as I saw yet another sign like that this week, I thought about what do we look like to God? Uh, Do we look like ugly houses when it comes to God? You know, you think about it, we're distressed property. We're desperate people because we're sinners. And God is in the business of buying ugly houses when it comes to us because he's in the business of redeeming us. But when it comes to God, he didn't pay pennies on the dollar for us. Instead, as we're going to see today in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 19, we were bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, of his Son, Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn with me today in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we're going to begin by reading verses 17 through 19. Peter says, And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, when we see verse 17, beginning with the word and, what that's telling us is he's continuing what we looked at last week, where he told us to be holy because God is holy. Now, the word holy, you'll recall, means to be set apart. It describes something that was consecrated for a specific purpose. And when it comes to us as believers in Christ, uh, we have been set apart God has bought us off the slave market of sin. And he says as such, we are now to live in a way according to our new position, to live our lives for the Lord. Our gratitude to God should be motivation enough as we think about the new life that God has given to us. But just in case we need a little more motivation, Peter reminds us today, we're going to be judged one day for how we've lived our lives as Christians here on the earth. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about uh, different judgments. There's more than one to come, but you'll notice here Peter is focused on the judgment of a believer because he says, if you address God as Father, and that word if is actually uh, in the first class condition in the Greek text. So what that means is you could write since. It's a statement of fact is what a first class condition means. And he's saying since you address God as Father. Remember, Jesus said, we get the privilege as believers in Christ to call God in heaven our Father, our Daddy, when we pray. And what he told us back in 1 Peter 1, 3 is that when we place our faith in Christ, we've been born again. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God into the family. So he's saying, since you as Christians call God Father, since you understand that privilege that you have, he says there's a responsibility that comes with the privilege, which is why he says you are to conduct yourself in fear during your time, during your time of stay upon the earth. Now, remember back in uh, earlier in first Peter in in chapter one, verse one, Peter called us the peripedidimos. We talked about that Greek word there. It means to live as an alien, a stranger, a sojourner. We saw that it describes a resident of a different country who comes to a foreign land and lives there alongside the natives. And we talked about our responsibility as believers being ambassadors for Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. 
As Christians, we are foreigners while we dwell here on the earth. Our citizenship, our country is heaven. And we are living here alongside others, uh, representing God as his ambassadors. Now, Peter reminds us today again of that in verse 17. This time he uses a different Greek word, which is parakoia. And this word means to stay as a stranger. Peter is reminding these believers over and over, this is not your home. We're just passing through. And how we live our lives while we, were he- while we are here is, is just for a brief time. And so he says, while we're living here, conduct yourself in fear. Now, when we hear the word fear, for many people, it, we, we picture this cringing type of emotion. And maybe you're thinking, Peter's saying, well, you should be afraid and worried about whether or not you're going to get home to heaven when you die. But that's not what he's telling us here. Uh, this, as you look at verses 18 and 19, he tells us it's not by what we do that we're saved. Rather, it's by what Jesus did on the cross as he paid that penalty of death. And when we receive that gift, we become a believer. We become a, a, a part of the family, and that cannot be lost. This word fear, uh, which is an overpowering sensation, what Peter wants us to be overcome here is the sheer thought of who God is and what God has done for us. And he says when we recognize that privilege and what God paid for us, our response should then be this reverential fear, this understanding where we worship God, our heavenly daddy for what he's done for us. Now, notice that Peter calls God our impartial judge, because while he wants us to understand God's great love for us, he says there's a balance, believers. He says God is not, as, as some people picture Jesus, hey, he's my running buddy, he's my bro. Uh, what God says is, look, you need to understand I love you and you are my children, he says, but I am also a holy and just God. And so there's this, this balance here where we understand that our daddy in heaven is not some indulgent father who says, what's your every wish and desire? Or I'm just going to wink at you when you sin. What Peter says is we are to live holy lives, not to have this casual carelessness as a Christian. To understand how this concept of God's love and holiness come together. How can God be this holy, just God, as well as being this loving, gracious God who's our Father? How do these two concepts come together? Well, we can illustrate it this way. If you picture a courtroom, if you've ever been in a courtroom and uh, seeing the, the jury system and the trials and everything that are happening, you know there's a judge up on the bench. So imagine you're in, in a courtroom, and you're actually the defendant. You're on trial. You're not just observing this. And there's a judge uh, up on the bench, and you know he's there in his black robe. He's got this stern look. And imagine the courtroom that you're in is one where this judge is known for being very strict. Now, very fair, but very strict. If you break the law, what it means is you're going to get the maximum penalty that the law dictates. And so one day, uh, this judge's actual biological son walks into the courtroom as a defendant. He's there, he's shackled, he comes before the bench, and everybody's watching and says, oh, okay, let's see if this father is really going to be impartial and, and you know, apply the law to his son. So the boy is there, and uh, the judge is looking at the docket, sees his son, sees the crimes that are committed, and, and uh, he says, uh, how do you plead? And the kid goes, Dad, it's me. I'm your son. And he bangs the gavel down on the you know, court 
bench and he says, uh, did you commit these crimes? And the kid says, well, yeah, dad, I did. So he slams the gavel down. And he says, guilty is charged. The penalty is $1 million. And this boy looks up at his father and he says, dad, you, you can't do that. You know I don't have a million dollars. If you sentence me to pay a million dollar fine, I'm going to be in jail the rest of my life. I will die there. I will be separated from you for the entirety of my lifetime. And the judge says, you're guilty. The penalty must be paid. And what the father then does is he stands up. He takes off his judicial robe. He lays it on the the bench And he comes down off the bench and he walks up alongside his son. And he reaches into his pocket, he pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check for $1 million, everything this father has. And he rips the check out and he holds it out to his son. Now the son has to make a choice. Will he take the check that can pay the penalty in full and walk over to the window and, and, and pay that penalty with the check that his father has given him? Or will he reject it? If he rejects it, then he goes to jail the rest of his life. He has to pay the penalty himself. And friends, that's what God has done with us. Because he looks at us as his children, as men and women, we have been created in the image of God. And, and we stand before our father, God the judge on the throne, who says, did you sin? And the Bible tells us we've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it also goes on to tell us in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we stand there and we say, Yes, I sinned. And God bangs the gavel down and he says, Guilty of sin, the penalty is death. And we say, Dad, you can't do that. If you sentence me to death... I will be separated from you for all eternity. And God is this fair and just and holy. God says you have to pay the penalty. But knowing we can't pay it ourselves, he took off his robe, his glory, so to speak, laid it aside in heaven. He stepped down to earth, came alongside us in the form of a man as Jesus Christ. And he wrote a check for everything he had, the Bible tells us in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he wrote this check for eternal life on the cross because John nineteen thirty tells us when Jesus breathed his last, he said, it is finished. The Greek word teleste, which literally means paid in full. He paid the penalty of death in full for our sins. And he wrote that check and he ripped it out and he holds it out to you today. And he says, you can take the check that I wrote and you can pay the penalty of death with my blood or you can pay it yourself. And so the question today is, have you ever taken the check? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. God says, if you will accept my gift by confessing me as your savior, then you will be saved. And Jesus showed us the check is good. Friends, if I wrote you a check today for a million dollars, you'd be real excited until you got to the bank and you tried to deposit it. And as you wrote your name on the back of the check and gave it to the teller, they would try to deposit it and they'd go, I'm sorry, uh, sir or madam, uh, there's insufficient funds. This check is no good. 
Well, Jesus showed us the check for eternal life is good, that he conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead three days later. And so when he writes this check good for eternal life, and he says, if you will accept my death in your place, if you will take the check and write your name on there and deposit it in your account, the check is good, the account is closed, paid in full, and you are saved. If you've never taken that check, accepting God's payment in your place, then, friends, you get to pay the penalty yourself. We find that in the judgment that is described in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. There it says, And I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, notice plural, books were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is where our names are recorded when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And you'll notice that the great white throne judgment, these are not Christians, these are non-believers. Because it says God looks in the book of life and every single person there does not have their name in the book of life. They did not receive Jesus as their Savior, so their name is not there. So God being fair and just says, fine, I'm going to look in the books, plural. Everything you and I have ever done in our entire lives is recorded by God. The scriptures are clear. It says God is not unjust so as not to record and reward your labor. So people who say, well, you know, I've lived a good life and I think I can earn my way to heaven. God says, well, let's look in the books. And some people are going to have some really great uh, things in there. Oh, I see you did all kinds of wonderful things, but I also see where you sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God being holy and just says the penalty of death has to be paid. Those who are there at the great white throne judgment have already died once physically. So the death that they pay, the second death is the lake of fire, what we call hell. And God says every single person at the great white throne judgment goes to hell because they rejected God's check, his gift of eternal life bought and paid for through the blood of his son, Jesus. Because they did not receive his payment, they will be rejected. Jesus has this gift of new life, and it has to be received while we are alive. Some people say, well, there's going to be a second chance, right? If you're there at the great white throne judgment, you go, okay, God, I'll take the check now. But what Hebrews 9.27 tells us is, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. God says the decision has to be made now while you are living on this earth. Once you die, your, your destiny is set, either heaven or hell. Now, there is a judgment for the Christian as well. The great white throne judgment will have no believers at it. That is all non-believers. There is one destination, separation from God. For a believer in Christ, when we die, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our eternal souls go into his presence. And then we face what is called the Bema judgment seat. It's called the Bema because it's the Greek word Bema or the Bematos. You'll find it in Romans 14, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10. 
And the Bema judgment seat uh, was an actual physical place of judgment that the first century Christians knew about because in the first century it was used to denote this elevated platform where either political orations or judicial decisions were made. Now on the slide you see what looks like the Olympic medal stand because that is also the word Bema that actually describes the medal stand that we find in the Olympics. The Bema toss is a reward stand Uh, This word bima, as I told you, is found in Romans 14.10. There it says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the bima seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Recompensed, rewarded, paid off for what you did while you were living, good or bad. Now, We're not judged to see if we've lived good enough lives to get to heaven. The Bible is clear. We can't be good enough to work our way to heaven. 2 Corinthians, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What we as Christians are being judged for is how did we live our lives after receiving the gift of eternal life. And this is what's described in 1 Corinthians three ten through 15. It says, Paul writes there, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. Now, what is this foundation? Well, it's our faith in Christ. It says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are the good, eternal, lasting things. In contrast, he says, there's also wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen to this. But he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. See, the foundation of faith is what saves us. We did nothing to earn it, and we can do nothing to lose it. There is a security that we have in Christ it, we're told here, even if, our re, even if our life works burn up, we cannot lose the ticket home to heaven because Jesus Christ paid for it. I want to remind you what Peter told us earlier in 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. There as he talked about our salvation. He said it is imperishable, incorruptible. It is undefiled. It will not fade away. It is reserved for us in heaven where it and us, as we talked about, are protected and garrisoned about by God. Now, in that sermon, you'll remember, we also talked about the refining process of where precious metal like gold was placed in the fire. And as it was heated up, the the dross would burn off. They would skim off the slag. and, And what remained was the precious metal. And as the goldsmith could see his face reflected in the metal, he knew it was refined and ready to come out. And we talked about how God wants us to reflect the image of his son as this purpose of the refining fire for us. Well, now what Peter is doing is giving us another illustration using fire. And he says, we will be, this is now after our life on earth is over. He says, we stand before God and God takes our life works and he puts it in the fire. 
and all the worthless stuff burns up, when we were selfish and we didn't use our time or resources for eternal things, those burn up. But the precious things, the eternal things remain. And then he takes those and he gives them to us as a reward. Remember the Bema seed is also the reward stand in the Olympics. The picture there is the one Peter uses here, where he says those who ran the race of life well, those who finished in a, in a way that, that was at the level God wanted us to live our lives, he says you have rewards. Now the Bible tells us the rewards we receive are crown rewards, and there's responsibilities in the millennial kingdom, as we've talked about in past sermons. But you know, the picture here that I'm using of the Bema seat is what we understand with the Olympic medals that we receive. And the scenario is where God will say to some of us, you lived your life at a bronze level medal. And that's great. Here you go. But he says others lived their lives uh, at a silver level. And then what we all hope to attain to as believers is to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And God gives us the gold Now, as we're talking about the awarding of medals, I want to make sure you understand this. We're not competing against everybody else. God has us in our own races. When it comes to the gold medal life, if you're saying, well, who can can lead more people with God's help to the Lord than Billy Graham did? None of us can win the gold because that's already sewn up. Well, you're not running your race against Billy Graham. You're running your race against who you are. God's going to look at what did he entrust to you with your time, your, your resources and other things, and how did you run your race? We're each in our own specific categories, and God will judge us on what we did with what he gave to us. Now, in verses 18 through 19, Peter again makes clear, it's not our works that save us, but what Jesus did on the cross. Because he says there in verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, this Greek word for redeemed here is lutrao. Lutrao is this word that means to, to set free by the payment of a ransom to set free by the payment of a ransom. It was literally used to buy a slave off the slave block. It was used in secular contexts where you would go into a slave market and you would purchase a person who had been captured in war or who owed a debt or who, for whatever reason, was, was a captured slave if, if they were held hostage by an enemy. And those in the first century would have had a perfect understanding of this because if you went to a church in the first century, there were three kinds of people there. There were free men. Free men were those like Paul. Remember, Paul was always talking about how, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. When the illegal things were being done to them, he'd ask the religious leaders, can you do this to a Roman? And they'd, they'd oh my gosh, we can't do this. Paul's a free man. Well, then there were also what were called freedmen. These were men and women who had been slaves. That was the third category. There were slaves uh, in the first century church as well, indentured servants and others. And so the freedmen were men and women who had been a slave but had been purchased out of slavery, had been set free. And while a slave could be freed with the payment of money, there's no amount of money that can set a lost sinner free. There's only one payment for that. And Peter says it's the precious, 
blood of the Lamb that was shed for you and me. Jesus Christ came to buy us out of the slave market of sin to set us free. He's described here as a lamb without blemish. It means he's perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the permanent sacrifice. Remember in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's plan to save us was in place even before the world began. We see that in 1 Peter one twenty through 21 He says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, God knew all this was going to happen before we even walked this earth, before the earth was even formed. God had his plan in place. Nothing takes God by surprise. He didn't look at us and go, Adam and Eve sinned. What am I going to do now? They blew it. He had the plan in place before the first man and woman ever were put on this earth. And he knew about you before you were born. And he loved you before you were born. He, he redeemed you. Friends, this isn't some nebulous, uh, dry theological concept. It says for your sake. Make this personal. Put your name in there. And then ask yourself personally, have you received God's check? He had the plan of redemption. He sent his son to die on the cross to save you and me from our sins. And he says, I've written a check. I'm holding it out. It's good for eternal life. Have you taken the check? Have you accepted my son as your savior? Have you endorsed it? Have you put the check in the bank? As I said, the check is good. He showed that when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. He says, the check is waiting for you. All you have to do is cash it. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Verse 22 says, when we accept the check, it says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That word for purification of our souls is in the perfect verb tense. And what that means, it's it's a completed action with continuing results in the present. So what it means is we were saved at the moment of belief, but God says you're not just saved to sit. It's to have uh, ongoing results in your present life. And the ongoing results he says here is that one of the results of our new life in Christ is that we're going to seek to live according to that new life. Not as slaves to our past sins. We've been redeemed. Remember, be holy. You've been set apart. You've been consecrated. And so he says, walk with me in obedience to my word. Another sign of our changed life should be the way it changes our relationship with others, especially when it comes to the family of faith, other brothers and sisters in Christ. He says here, we're to have a sincere love of the brethren. This word sincere literally means genuine, without hypocrisy. We don't just say something with our lips. What he says is it's seen in our life. Some of you here are fans of the uh, Peanuts cartoons. Remember the old Peanuts comic strip? Two of the main characters in this uh, Peanuts series were Schroeder and Lucy. 
Schroeder was the intellectual pianist. You know, he always had his head down, pounding on the little toy piano. And Lucy, you'll remember, was smitten with Schroeder. She was always hanging around, leaning on his piano, making, you know, gaga eyes at him. And uh, in this one comic, it shows Schroeder playing the piano. She's kind of leaning on on it, looking over at him, just enamored with Schroeder. And uh, she says, uh, do you know what love is? Now, the next frame... Uh, shows Schroeder. He stopped playing his piano. He's kind of looking up. And then with a, a very straightforward manner, he says, love, a noun, to be fond of, a strong affection for, an attachment to, or a devotion to a person or persons. And then in the next frame, he just goes back to playing the piano. <laughs> and Lucy's kind of looking at him with a blank stare on her face. And then the final frame of the comic strip shows her looking away with a frown on her face. And she says, you know, on paper, he's great. (laughs) How many of us as Christians are like Schroeder? On paper, we're great, right? Somebody says, what is love? And we go, oh, I got it. Flip through our Bible. We get to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account wrongs. And on paper, we're great, right? We can give a definition. We're, we're, hey, it's right here. But you know, that's not what the Bible says we're to do. What these verses say is we're to show what love is through our life and labors. In 1 John uh, 3.18, we're told, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And if you're one who likes to quote 1 Corinthians 13, go back and look at that passage, study it. Because what you'll find is love is defined there not as words or a noun or adverbs, feelings and emotions. They're verbs. Every one of those is a verb of action. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love requires action on our part. So even when we don't feel like we love somebody, God says, show a loving action. This is what God did for us. God showed love for us. Read Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Read John 3.16. For God so loved the world. How? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Love is an action. And God calls on us as believers who have received his love, beneficiaries of his love, to show it to others. As Peter is writing here, in in those verses in Romans 5, 8 and John 3, 16, love that is used there is the Greek word agape. And we'll talk about that word in a moment because Peter talks about the agape love we're to have. But first he uses a different Greek word, Philadelphia. We're to have a brotherly love for one another. That's why you hear Philadelphia called the city of brotherly love, because that's what the Greek word means. It means we have this bond for the brethren, for brothers and sisters. We show love to one another because we're family. But he says we don't just stop with family. He says we're to have an agape love, an all-giving, deep, self-sacrificing love. That's the word he uses when he says fervently love one another. He even adds this word fervent to it, which means deep or intense. A literal translation of this word fervent is to be strained. It describes something that is at a full stretch. Have you ever seen a horse that it is at a full gallop? I mean, going all out. 
That's the picture of this word. It was also used to describe an athlete who was straining with his or her body. If you've ever seen a race at the end when they're straining, leaning into the tape, this is the picture here. It means you're at a full run. You're, you're not slowing down. You're running at full speed into the finish line. You'll see where they throw their arms back. They lean into the tape. And in some cases, they even literally launch themselves across uh, the finish line. And this is the picture that, that Peter gives to us. He says, we are to be at this full, all-out run uh, demonstrating love. Last week in verse 13, Peter told us to prepare our minds for action. You remember how Jason described the process that it means to gird up your loins, how you gather up that robe and you would tuck it in your belt so you could run unhindered. Well, Peter is telling us it's not enough just to think about it. He says, don't just prepare your mind. Just don't have a plan. He says, get up and go. Do it. Show love to one another. Demonstrate it. Put feet to your faith as you show love. And like the runners in that picture, throw your arms out. Lean into the tape. Go full speed at it. Friends, all we have to do is look at the cross to get a picture of what our love should look like. Because God didn't say to us, I love you this much or this much. He said, I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross to shed his precious blood to wash away your sins and mine. And he says, as recipients of that grace, go and show that love to others. Open your arms. Welcome the prodigal son or daughter. Find that person who who needs to be enfolded and brought into the family who needs to feel that love. As Christians, we've been redeemed We've been bought off the slave block. And we're to respond to God's love by demonstrating his love to others. I want to illustrate it this way. There was a story of a young slave girl. Now, this was back in the, the days of the atrocious history of our country where slavery would happen and you could go into a market and you could purchase a slave off, off the block. And one day there was a beautiful young girl who was put up on, on the slave block. And the bidding was going on, and as the crowd was there, there was a a wretched man in the crowd who was known for his cruelty. Everybody knew how evil this guy was and the lust he had in his heart for, for this young girl as he stepped forward was evident as he began to bid on her. And the price was getting higher and higher, and everybody was dropping off, and it looked like this this evil man was going to purchase this young girl. But just then, another man steps out of the crowd. It was a kindly old gentleman. He was known for his uh, being a believer in Christ and his love that he demonstrated, and he began to bid against this other person. And as the price got up to an astronomical level, finally this evil man just said, forget it. And he dropped out, and this other uh, kindly old Christian bought this girl. And as he went and he paid this enormous price for her, he began to walk away. And as he did, this young girl begins to follow him. And he, and he stops and he says, what are you doing? And she said, well, you bought me. I'm yours. You can do with me whatever you want. And he said, oh, dear, you, you don't understand. I didn't buy you because I needed a slave. I bought you to set you free. And at that point, this girl drops to her knees and she says, well, then, then I will serve you forever. Friends, that's what God did for us. We were on the slave block of sin. Our enemy, Satan, was trying to purchase us. He wanted us. 
And God stepped in and he, he bought us at an astronomical price. The price of the life of his son who shed his blood for you and me. And God says to us, I didn't buy you because I needed a slave. I bought you to set you free. And our response should be to fall on our knees and say, then God, I will serve you forever. Not because we have to, but because we want to as a response of gratitude to his grace. And as we serve him, God says, you can't see me, but you can see others. As you read Matthew chapter 25, there Jesus Christ says, whatever you did to the least of these, you've done to me. Remember there he's talking about if, if you gave a drink to somebody, if you fed somebody, if you clothed somebody, if you visited somebody in prison, then you've done it to me. And what God says to us is, as you serve me, you can serve those who are created in my image that you see around you, others who need to see my love demonstrated. Our passage ends in 1 Peter 23 through 25 telling us, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. What he's quoting from here is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And he uses the image there of the picture of plants that sprout up and then they die to remind us that the things of this world are, are just passing. The stuff of this world may look pretty and great, but he says it's just up for a small season and then it passes away. And like grass that's thrown into, you know, leaves and grass that are bagged up or hauled away or burned in a pile. He says that's what the stuff of the world is. Friends, do you realize there are only two things in this world that last for eternity? The word of God and the eternal souls of men and women who are created in the image of God. And what he tells us is, as we live our lives, we should invest in the things that are not passing, the stuff of the world, but instead the things that last for all eternity. Doing the business of God that he lays out for us in his word and reaching others with the good news of the gospel who will last for all eternity. As you think about what you're doing with your life, God says, choose to invest in the things that will last for all eternity. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you, first, for the offer of forgiveness, for the gift of grace and new life that you purchased, Jesus, through the shedding of your blood. Lord God, I pray if there's anyone listening today who's here who's online, wherever they may be, who has not yet received your gift of eternal life, that today would be the day where they take the check, where they accept your gift of grace, and they say, God, I'm a sinner, and I owe a penalty of death, and I thank you, Jesus, that you took my place, that you paid the penalty of death by shedding your blood, and today I accept that gift of new life. I know, Jesus, the check is good because you rose from the dead, showing you conquered sin and death. And today I receive that. Father, for the rest of us who have already come to you, may we serve you, living our lives for you, not because of what we can get, not hoping that we have more crowns and rewards than others in heaven, but, Father, just out of a gratitude of the grace we've received because what we've already been given by you, that gift of new life through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray and thank you today.
Amen. Thank you again for worshiping with us. Thank you for worshiping online. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.